good morning. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be back with you once again. And uh, today we are continuing our beginning of the year series called Entrusted. Well, here's the idea. At Gospel Hope, if you've been around for a while, you know that our mission is to make disciples who are growing in the gospel as a family while on mission. And um, we want followers of Jesus to be growing in three relationships, the relationship with God, the relationship with other believers, and the relationship with the world. And as we've kicked off 2024, we've been looking at the book of 2 Timothy, which in that book, Paul reminds his ministry protege, Timothy, that he has been entrusted, guess what, with a? It's up on the screen, y'all. He has been entrusted with a? You're terrible. Or I'm terrible. We're all terrible. Watch my fingers. All right, ready? We have been entrusted with a? Very good. And a? And a? Very good. All right. I will withdraw that resignation letter. I will take it off my desk. Yeah. Um, and over the last couple of weeks, we've been, we've been reminding ourselves, is not only is this true in the scripture, but we've seen it throughout church history. So two weeks ago, we reminded ourselves that we've been entrusted with the gospel, and we looked at the life of William Tyndale, who was primarily responsible for translating the, the Bible into the English language. Uh, last week, we were reminded that we have been entrusted with a family. So we were encouraged by the example of Pastor Francis Grimke, who served in pastoral ministry for 50 years, one congregation. And then this week, we're going to round out the series by reminding ourselves we've been entrusted with a mission, and we are going to be encouraged, Lord willing, from the life of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dive into 2 Timothy chapter 2 together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for entrusting us with the gospel, with a family, and with a mission. I pray, Lord, today you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. Lord, I need you. We need you. So allow through my voice for your people to hear the voice of the good shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. When you start school, uh, you learn about numbers. And the first thing that you learn to do in numbers is what? You know, count. You learn to count. And then you learn to what? Add. And then you learn to... All of that seems fairly straightforward. Usually kids pick that up. Oh, I take away, I add to. And then you get to this sorcery called multiplication. In counting, addition, and subtraction, the numbers increase incrementally, a little at a time. But then you get to multiplication, and suddenly the numbers start increasing exponentially. This was not just some cruel trick by evil men who wanted to torture little kids with mathematical times tables and things. This was actually the design of God for the world. The great mathematician built multiplication into the fabric of the very universe. Some of you are like, you just wrecked my perception of God. How can God who is good create something evil like math? I'm telling you, he did. God's plan for the world is actually multiplication. We see this on the opening pages of scripture where God says to Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter one, verse number 22, be fruitful and what's it say? Multiply. 
and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds of the and let the birds multiply on the earth. Then the Lord comes along to Abraham, kind of the the father of his chosen people. And God says to Abraham these words, Genesis 17, verse number two, I will set up my covenant between me and you and I will, what's it say? Multiply you greatly. It should not be surprising to us then, since multiplication is woven into the fabric of our existence, that the Lord's marching orders for the church continues to be multiplication. This is evident in our passage here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Remember, this is Paul writing his swan song, his farewell address to Timothy, his young protege in the ministry. And as Paul gets ready to pass off the scene, he lays out for Timothy his disciple-making strategy, and it involves multiplication. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 1. Look at what it says. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that you have in Christ Jesus. Now, keep going here. It says this. What you have heard from me in the presence of of many witnesses commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I want you to notice the progression there. So let me have uh, Derek, Marcus, and Nicole, can you guys come up here real quick? There's a progression of disciple making that is happening in this passage. So essentially kind of getting a line there close together, come on towards the center, there we go. I know, I know, I like to make you nervous though, Derek, it's my job, okay. So Paul is saying, hey, I have taken what I've been taught and I have passed it on to you, Timothy. And Timothy, you are supposed to take that and you are to pass it on to faithful men. And that person, those faithful people are to do what? Pass it on to others also. Paul is not saying, Timothy, you just go and, was that weird? Well, I know, well. Derek's disobedient, that's fine. It's this progression that we see in the passage. Take what you've learned and pass it on. Take what you've learned and pass it on. Take what you've learned and pass it on. Thank you, give these folks a round of applause. Very simple. We're not to be spiritual cul-de-sacs where we learn so that we can be really good at Bible trivia. Or, or we won't learn just so we can know and be the smartest person in the room. No, God always entrusts us with stuff so that we can pass it on. In other words, listen very simply, our mission is multiplication. That is our mission. Our mission is multiplication. God does not simply want us to know facts. He wants us to pass on all that has been entrusted to us. And why is this important? because of this, let me put something up on the screen there, because multiplication is greater than addition. I'm the son of a math teacher and that blesses me on all kinds of levels and so it can bother you all you want, but I am blessed this morning. <laughs> multiplication is greater than addition. Sometimes we have this notion that the job of disciple making is the professional Christian like me, you know, in a very real sense, and I'm very grateful for it, but in a very real sense, I get a paycheck to be a Christian. Like, I'm the pro. It is my vocation to do Christian stuff all the time. 
And sometimes we can think of pastors like that, like, oh, the pastor, their job is disciple making. There's a couple of problems with that. The first problem is this, it's not biblical. Now, I'm certainly supposed to be, as a follower of Jesus, a disciple maker, but I am not to be the only disciple maker. In fact, the Bible says the job of pastors is actually to equip other people to do the work of the ministry. My primary function is not to do it. My primary function is to equip others. I'm supposed to, just like Paul said to Timothy, take what I've learned and pass it on to others who will take what they've learned and pass it on and who will take what they've learned and pass it on. Got me? That's the first reason. It's just not biblical because here's why. Because, look up at the screen, simply this idea. Part of following Jesus is teaching others to follow Jesus. Okay, let that sink in just a little bit. Part of following Jesus is teaching others to follow Jesus. In other words, if you're not teaching others to follow Jesus, maybe you're not following him. Because what Jesus says is, take what I've learned and pass it on. Take what I've learned and pass it on. So we can't really be a disciple of Christ a follower of Christ without being a disciple maker. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. With me on that? So it's unbiblical to say, hey, pastor, that's your job to make disciples. Second reason is it's just super unpractical to say, hey, it's the job of the professional Christian to make disciples exclusively. We're gonna do a little mathematics exercise right now. You guys ready? Okay, no, not ready. Lily Grace is not ready. Okay, Clay is ready. Clay, why don't you come up here actually you can be my counter, actually. So, Clay, right here. So, let's pretend. See, if you get enthusiastic about stuff, you just get embarrassed. That's it. All right. So, Clay, right here. So, Clay's going to count the number of years. Let's say you get a super pastor, and he is able to take three people every year from not knowing Jesus, and in one year's time, they are a fully mature follower of Christ. Okay, with me on that? So we're gonna see how many years, in 10 years, how many disciples we can make. Okay, so Clay's gonna be our year counter. So year number one, you're gonna stand up. I'm gonna do these three on the front row because if you sit in the front, you get blessed more, okay? <laughs> Second Hezekiah chapter three. Okay, so, so, so these three, so you guys stand up. So how many do we got after year one? Actually, four, four, because count me, okay. Year number two, next three, now we got how many? Seven. Year number three? Ten. Year number four? One, two, three. Sorry, Ben. <laughs> I'll get to you next year. <laughs> How many we got? Thirteen. Year number five? How many? Sixteen. Year number six? One, two, Amy. You're chosen. <laughs> Nineteen. Year number seven? Couriers, I'm just going to avoid you, AJ. That's bad. How many? 20, 22, year number eight. One, two, three. Year number nine. One, two, three. What happened? 28. Here's year number 10. One, two. Henry, you are the last, brother. And that's how many? 31. So in 10 years, you would have 31 followers of Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Okay. Clap, clap, clap. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sit down. Okay, now, 31, stay there, Clay. Yep. 
I'm going to go over to this side, the side that has been chosen by destiny. Let's suppose instead we take a different approach. And instead of investing of three people, you just do one. But you teach that one to disciple someone else. So you're number one, Clay, I disciple Eugene. How many we got at the end of year number one? Two, slower. But then year number two, Eugene and I start to do this. T point to somebody, Eugene. You, you got, no, no, sit down, Eugene doesn't want you. Yeah. <laughs> so up, year number two, we got how many? Four. Now keep doing that. Year number three, Jesse, get in the game. Eight. Year number four, everybody get somebody. You got to move now. When you get tagged, stand up. How many? 16. Year number five. Get in the game, guys. Get in the game. 32. Okay. Stay there. Just stay standing for a second. So, all right. At the end of 10 years, we had how many? Right now, in five years, we have how many? Same time. Okay. You guys can sit down. Give everybody a round of applause. All right. Thank you, Clay. I can take it from here, brother. But here's the thing, consider we keep doing that. Year number six, how many do we have? 64. Year number seven, how many do we have? 128. Year number eight, how many do we have? 256. Year number nine, how many? 512. Year number 10, 10 over 1,000. Which strategy is better? Multiplication. Multiplication beats addition every single time. We have to recognize that, look, it is not my mission. It's not Pastor Rod's mission. It's not Pastor Eddie's mission. It's not our elder's mission. It is our mission that all of us need to be engaging in. And frankly, if we do get engaged in it, the world will not know what hit them. Because disciples who make disciples who make disciples is the plan of God for the world. Can I say this very kindly? Coming to church on Sunday is not our mission. It's good, it is indispensable, it is critical. But we do not do the mission here. We get equipped for the mission here. The mission is out there. This is training. This is equipping. Too often, we, we, we're upside down. It's like if Christianity was like football, sometimes we Christians would be like a team who got in our huddle and then walked up to the line of scrimmage and say, ah, I'd rather just do the huddle some more. Those guys are big and I might get tackled and we might not run the play right. Let's just huddle some more. And we never run the play. We huddle for the purpose of running the play. And if we don't run the play, then we are not playing the game. Yes, you may get hit. 
Yes, the other team may be better. Yes, you may fumble. Yes, you may drop a pass. But I guaranteed you won't score a touchdown if we never run the play. Brothers and sisters, our mission is not come to church. Coming to church is critical. And if you've ever talked to me, you know I am committed to the gathering of God's people, the preaching of God's word, praying together, worshiping together. I love Sundays. It's my favorite day of the week. But this is not the mission. This is preparation for the mission. Which brings me to my point this morning, which is simply this. We must all embrace the mission of multiplication. Listen, church, disciple-making is not the responsibility of the few. It is the privilege of the all. To be a disciple is to be a disciple-maker. But if this is the case, if you're like, all right, Ryan, I'm with you. It's biblical, it's practical. All right. If that's the case, why aren't more people involved in making disciples? Can I tell you why, very simply? Because there's a cost involved. There's a cost involved in making disciples. And in this passage of scripture, Paul lays out for us very plainly what the cost is. He tells us by using three very powerful images what it takes to make disciples. And today, as I said, we're going to be learning from the example of somebody who went before us, who were willing to do what it takes to multiply disciples, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. This couple, along with several other families, were pioneer missionaries to Ecuador. And you can't really properly tell the Elliot story without including their team members with them. At the beginning of the story, Elizabeth, who will kind of round out the story with, is kind of a supporting cast. But at the end of the story, she shines brightly in finishing the mission that God had called them to do. The Elliots and their co-workers were willing to do what it takes to multiply the mission, and we would be wise to follow their example. So what does it take? If you're taking notes, three things we're going to look at this morning. What it takes to multiply. First thing is this. It takes, we must obey like soldiers. Look at verse number three of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. Our mission of multiplication calls disciple makers to serve, look at what the text says, as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Notice particularly in this passage, the posture of the soldier. He is wholly oriented towards pleasing his commanding officer. The opinions of others and even his own, his own comfort are secondary considerations. If I could put it very simply, for soldiers of Christ, obedience is not optional. It's not like maybe I'll listen to what you says. No, you are my CEO. You are my commander. And so therefore I obey. That is my instinct. That is my posture. That is my impulse. This was definitely true of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and their missionary bands. 
In the 1950s, the Lord led five couples to Ecuador, South America to do missions work. The couples began serving alongside missionaries who were already in Ecuador among the Quechua people. But this was never the end goal. Deeper in the jungles lived the Wodani, a tribe who had never been exposed to the gospel and had only deadly encounters with outsiders. The Quechuas referred to them as Aucas, is a term of derision. It simply meant savages. But the Lord, in his grace, put it in the hearts of all five of these couples to do what it took to get the gospel to this unreached Stone Age people known as the Wodani. And here's the reality. All five couples had far more comfortable and seemingly attractive opportunities in front of them. Jim Elliott was a natural-born leader, handsome and charismatic. He had multiple offers for ministry positions in the United States. Ed McCulley was a sharp mind, gifted student, athlete, and orator. He won a national speech competition and was unanimously elected student body president at Wheaton College. McCulley was set to begin his second year of law school at Marquette University when reading God's word completely redirected his life. The other three families had similar resumes, but they were willing to leave it all behind. Here's how Jim described Roger Udarian in his journal, one of the men that went with them. Roger knows the importance of unswerving conformity to the will of his captain. Obedience is not a momentary option. It is a die-cast decision made beforehand. He was a disciplined paratrooper, and he gave Uncle Sam his best in a battle, and now he is determined that the Lord Jesus Christ shall not get less than that. Everything that makes him a good soldier has been consecrated to Christ, his new captain. Or as Elizabeth put it, God is God. And because he is God, he is worthy of my trust and obedience. I will find nowhere but in his holy will that is unspeakable beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. And so these five young couples threw seemingly promising futures away because they were seeking to obey their commander and chief. This should be a challenge to all of us. Now, the Lord may not be leading you to leave everything behind and to go live in the jungle. He might be. It's possible. But maybe he's not. But the question that I want all of us to ask is simply this. Have we all given the Lord Jesus Christ our yes, sir? Have we all saluted, said, Lord, you're in charge I'm not. You're the commander. I'm not. Whatever you say, the answer is yes. I don't know the order. I don't know the command. But my default position towards you is I am a soldier. Yes, sir. Whatever you want, whatever you ask, it is yours because you are in charge of my life. Like Paul urged Timothy, if we are to multiply disciples, we must have the posture of soldiers. Look, sometimes in the church, we, we talk about these wonderful images. We're family. It's beautiful. I love it. We're brothers and sisters. God is our father. He is our shepherd. We are his sheep. That's beautiful. I love that imagery. We're his children. Oh, that's sweet and precious. 
but we are also an army. And he's in charge. When we sign up to follow Jesus, it means believe on the Lord. You know what that word means? Master, king. He's the one that is in charge. Can I maybe tweak sometimes our theology of present day? The Lord is not, let me get this right. The Lord is our commander, not our consultant. If we're to multiply disciples, we're not seeking advice from God. If we're to multiply disciples, he has already told us his will. And it is our responsibility to obey his commands. You know, you used to see those old bumper stickers. I don't know if they do those. Jesus is my co-pilot. Have you seen these? That is an erroneous theological statement. Because Jesus never sits in the passenger chair. He will be Lord of all or not at all. He will not be an advisor to your life, but he will be a good and sweet and precious king. So if we are to see our mission go forward, we must obey like soldiers. Number two, not only must we obey like soldiers to make the mission go forward, we must work like farmers. Skip down to verse number six. Look at what it says there. The, what's that second word? Hard-working farmer ought to be the first to get his share of the crops. There's a lot in this verse. All I want to hone in right now is that little phrase, the hard-working farmer. Obviously, we all know that agriculture is labor-intensive. It requires vision, planning, strategy, execution, and often huge amounts of work. And what Paul is telling Timothy, that disciple-making, multiplication is the same. If you want to multiply disciples, you got to work. That's what he's saying. It is hard work to do so. This is important because sometimes I think we have the idea that spiritual things should be effortless things. That's like crept into our consciousness somehow. Like when we go and open up our Bibles in the morning. Oh, I just got my Bible out. And rays of sunlight just shine down upon me, and it was just a sweet time with God. I could have read for hours. It's not typically what my Bible reading looks like in the morning, but if that's your expectation, you're gonna be disappointed a lot. Or we think, oh, I'm gonna go to the Lord in prayer, and I could hear the little angel chorus as I was seeking God. I, I just prayed for three hours and just totally lost track of time. Or, oh, I'm... I'm trying to share my faith, and I just expect people to come up to me. What must I do to be saved, wise one? Well, this is not the picture that we get in Scripture. Spiritual is not the same thing as effortless. Because here in this passage, Paul is saying, man, Timothy, you want to multiply disciples? You want to see the work of the mission go forward? Paul or Timothy, you want to grow people in their walk with Jesus? Get ready to work. This passage reminds us very simply that disciple-making is demanding. 
This was certainly true of the Elliots and their colleagues in Ecuador. One of the couples that made up this team was Nate and Marge Saint. Nate was a pilot with the Missionary Aviation Fellowship and, his, and Marge, his wife, was his faithful radio operator. Nate's plane was a bright yellow Piper PA-14 family cruiser, which he used to transport supplies and missionaries to their various stations throughout the jungles. On one flight, as Nate was flying over the jungle, he spotted the homes of the elusive and completely unreached Wodani. He informed Jim Elliott of his discovery and eventually the others of these sightings and Operation Aka was put into effect. There were two major challenges to making contact with the Aka. First, as I said, up to this point, every contact they had had with outsiders had ended in death, either of the Akas or of the people that came to visit them. And number two, they were really inaccessible. It was here that the team got to work. So they're like, man, we got these obstacles to reach these people, and they use skill and ingenuity and planning and effort in order to see it done. As I said, the first obstacle was simply this. They, there had been no friendly contact between the Woodani and outsiders. And so Nate Saint, being a very skilled pilot and a brilliant man, devised a completely new way of flying. It's a technique that's still used today. It was never in existence before this. He would fl fly his plane in circles, tight circles, and let out line as he would go with a bucket on the end until he would have the bucket kind of hovering in place. And the, the rope would be going around and just kind of keeping the bucket in place. And so what they began to do is they would put gifts in there and over a series of three to four months, they would make daily or every other day drops, bringing gifts to the Woodani, trying to build a friendship in that way. By the end of the time, by the end of the drops, the Woodani would empty out the buckets and then put gifts of their own in. So this was encouraging news that they thought, oh man, we're developing a friendly relationship. So that obstacle was overcome. There was another obstacle that was seemingly just as large. It was simply like, how do we get to them? They're like in these remote areas in the jungle and we got a plane, how do we even get in there? We can't just stroll into the territory, we'll for sure be killed if we do that. So what they began doing is dropping gifts in the trees, in the trees and making hacking motions out the window, using sticks and cutting them off so the Wolodani would see. And they began to communicate, we need you to chop down the trees where the gifts are in. And that's what the Wolodani began to do. They started to make airstrips in the middle. I mean, here's what was fascinating to me. These guys were using their brains to make disciples. They, they, were, they, were, they were meeting together and strategizing and thinking about, man, how can we reach these people? Is that how you think about disciple making in your life? I think so often we just have this fingers crossed approach. Lord, give me an opportunity. No, make an opportunity. And you know the Lord's got to travel that distance. I mean, we can't change anybody's heart with compelling words or anything like that. But sometimes we're just not even available. We don't strategize. We don't plan. We don't think. We don't work in order to make those opportunities into real possibilities. So they got through that obstacle. And then here's what's crazy. Um, Nate Saint got them to make kind of these makeshift runways and um, he landed in these areas, the aviators, I'm not an aviator, I don't know much about planes, but the aviators still like puzzle over how he did it. 
200 to 300 yard airstrips. He's landing in the middle of jungle with these makeshift runways. He was a super skilled pilot. Again, just super encouraging in the idea that God used the unique gifts of this man and his hard work and his training and his effort to further the mission of God in the world. God made you who you are for his mission. I look across this room, there are bunches of smart, talented, educated, skilled, brilliant people. And you take that sometimes to your workplaces, but we don't take it to the mission of God, which matters way more. I've been rebuked sometimes. My dear wife, Trisha has said to me, Ryan, will you use that big brain of yours for this? And I'm like, oh, honey, you're absolutely right. Like, I need you to think about this. And I think what the Lord Jesus is saying to us through this passage is I need all of my followers to think about this. Think about how you are strategizing, how you are reaching, how you are furthering the impact of the gospel. Do you have a strategy for multiplication in your life? Let me say this very clear statement. I hope it will be, it resonated with me. But look, strategy is not the enemy of spirituality. We need to get that out of our head. Strategy is not the enemy of spirituality, but we should be scheming and dreaming and planning and executing and working hard to see the mission of God go forward. We plan and work to go on vacation, right? We plan and work to engage in our hobbies, right? We should also plan and work to multiply disciples in our life. Something far more important than any other thing. Number three, we must compete like athletes. If we're going to multiply the mission, we've got to compete like athletes. Look at verse number five. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Did you notice the emphasis of this metaphor? If an athlete wants to win, the passage is basically saying you've got to keep the rules. You can't cheat or you'll be disqualified. In the same way, when we strive to make disciples, we must do so according to God's rules. Let me summarize that idea. We must pursue God's mission in God's way. What does that mean? As I reflected on it, how did, what does it mean to be disqualified? What does it mean to compete according to the rules? I think it means that we don't attempt to make disciples by being dishonest, by trickery, by brute force, by hypocrisy. We do it with integrity and humility and truth speaking. In other words, these are the rules that the Lord Jesus Christ himself has given us. And if we're to truly make disciples, we can't do it with anger or lying or living one way and asking people to do a different thing than we're willing to do. We just can't do that. That's being disqualified from our ministry. So when Paul is urging Timothy to do that, he's saying, I need you to make disciples, but I need you to make disciples in a, in a, in a certain way. I need you to do it with godliness. Maybe the words of the Lord Jesus himself help us the most on this. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is competing according to the rules? I think it's following the pattern of the Lord Jesus and selflessly serving people with humility and truth. This was certainly embodied in the five missionary couples. <laughs> After months of gift giving, contact was finally made with the Woodani. Jim, Nate, Pete, Ed, and Roger set up a base on what they called Palm Beach, where after a couple days, they had extensive interaction with three members of the Wodani. This was so exciting. Remember, nobody had had positive interaction with this tribe before. They were completely unreached. The report was radioed back and the whole team was excited that it seemed like the door to this unreached people was finally getting open. And this is where things went terribly wrong. The following day, several Wodani warriors armed with spears emerged from the jungle. And even though the men, it was found out later, were armed with guns, they killed all five of them. Five widows right now. And they searched and they found them and their bodies were desecrated and insulted according to the Wodani customs. They threw them in the river. That was the biggest insult that could be given. It was a dark, dark day. But the story of the five men's death circled the globe. It was even featured in Life magazine, which was super popular at that time. And God used the death of these five athletes who didn't retaliate, who didn't seek revenge, who repaid evil with good, who selflessly, like the Lord Jesus Christ, laid down their life for others to ignite all kinds of good things. Many young people, because of the story of the five people, gave their lives to God and missionaries were sent out by the droves to Ecuador and around the world. What is more, other people heard about the story. There was a tribe in Brazil who had heard of Jesus and they were so convicted by what they heard that they began to aggressively reach out to other peoples in the jungles of the Amazon, spreading the gospel in a way that no Westerner or white man could do. Unbelievable fruit of the gospel in that way. And maybe most incredibly of all, God used this incident to reach the Wodani themselves. Shortly after the men were killed, two Wodani women came to the missionary station and began interacting with Elizabeth Elliot, the widow of Jim, and Rachel Saint, who was the sister of Nate Saint. After a year, Elizabeth learned enough of the Wodani language to understand that the tribe was inviting her and Rachel to, Rachel to come and live with them. Now put yourself in her shoes for a minute. These are not only people known for a reputation of violence, but these are the people who murdered her own husband. And now they're saying, come live with us. So Elizabeth did. She took her three-year-old daughter, Valerie, along with Rachel Saint, and they headed into the jungles to live with the Woodani. What happened was astounding. For nearly three years, Elizabeth stayed, and during that time, the New Testament was translated into their language, and many of the Woodani became followers of God's trail, as they called themselves. As counterintuitive as it was, Elizabeth listened, 
She competed according to the rules. She didn't repay evil with evil. She didn't seek revenge. She didn't go after her Shylock's pound of flesh. Rather, she, like her master, forgave. How is this possible? Here's why. Because forgiven people forgive people. She was able to compete because of what Jesus has done for her. And the story wasn't over. There's one final stroke that I would be remiss if I didn't share. Remember, along with um, the Elliots, the saints were part of that. They had a little son at the time. His name was Steve. And years later, after Elizabeth left the Wuodani, Steve Saint came and lived among them. He was invited by the, by the tribe. It was only then that they began to share some of the details about the murder. And it was discovered that one of the men, his name was Minkai, he just passed away about a year ago, um, was the person who had killed the men. He was one of the actual men that drove the spear in. But Minkai, years before, had become a follower of Jesus. And not only was there reconciliation, Minkai actually kind of adopted Steve as his own son. And for years, Steve Saint and Micaiah traveled around the world sharing the story of God's grace and mercy and the power of the gospel because they were willing to compete in a way where they weren't disqualified. What a powerful testament of God's grace and mercy. They literally called this man Grandpa Micaiah in the state family. He lived with them unbelievable power and transformation because of the gospel. And how does it happen? It's because people were willing to do what it takes, to do what it takes to engage in the mission of multiplication. This is the cost. God may not be calling you to martyrdom. God may not be calling you to some sort of radical forgiveness where people will be talking about it decades later, but here's what I do know. God is calling every one of us to obey like a soldier. Yes, sir. He is calling every one of us to work like a farmer, labor. God, I want to see your mission go forward, and here's where it shows up on my schedule. Here's my plans. Here's my schemes. Here's my strategies. Here's my execution. Here's my vision. I'm working hard, and then God calls us to compete like athletes with integrity. Don't be one thing at home and another thing at church. Don't be one thing at the workplace and another thing here. We'll never accomplish the mission if we do that. We've got to be people who compete according to God's way. We're honest, we're truth tellers, we're full of grace, we're full of forgiveness. We love God's word, we're unapologetic about it, we're kind, we're gentle, we suffer, we do the things that our master did because that is the only way to compete according to the rules. The way of Jesus is the path that we follow. And if we want to see the mission of God go forward in the world, we have to be committed to this. You might hear this and think, oh, Ryan, I, I resonate with that. But it sounds so scary to me, if I'm honest, to be that committed and be that courageous. 
Look back at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Let me give you a word of hope. Be strong in the, what's it say, church? Be strong in the, like you mean it, be strong in the, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. When Paul gives Timothy these instructions, he doesn't say, Timothy, be strong in your own power. Be strong in your own skill. Be strong through your own experiences. Be strong in your education. He says, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Oh man, this is a good word for us. Because sometimes we hear the commands of God, and if we don't have the grace of God, they feel like a burden. But I want to tell you of a reality. When God calls, He also enables every time. If God calls you to do something, you can rest assured that He will give you the grace that you need in order to carry it out. Every time. It is like God has given you a debit card. And it is linked to his divine account of grace. And can I tell you something? You cannot overdraft that account. Every time you go to make withdrawal, there will be plenty of funds available and more to spare. So you just keep going to that well. And if God is saying to you, man, you need to have that conversation with that loved one, with that friend about the gospel, and you're like, I'm scared. God says, just draw on me. I have the grace to give you the courage in that moment. If God is calling you to pack up your life and head overseas and take the gospel somewhere where it's not, and you're like, I'm terrified, you just put that thing in the bank account again. The grace will be available for you to do all that God has called you to do. Maybe God's calling you to start that Bible study. Maybe God's calling you to share your faith in a new and profound way. I don't know what God is calling you to do, but I do know this, that bank account will never run dry. When God calls, he enables every single time. Man, this is good news for us because God doesn't call us to be strong because we're strong. He calls us to be strong because he's strong. We can fulfill the mission. Not because we're enough. We can fulfill the mission because his grace is enough. He will meet you however you need it. I do not know how the Lord is leading you, but I do know this. He will meet you wherever he is leading. I want to close by encouraging us with the famous words of Jim Elliott. These were written in his journal before he went to Ecuador, simply said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This life is fleeting, it's passing. None of us can come, can hang on to it. And yet, if we will invest ourselves in the mission of God, the mission of multiplication, the mission of making disciples, we gain for us eternal rewards that will never, ever fade. 
Let's be about the mission, church. Amen? So we have people that leverage all that we have, all that we are for all that he is, for his name, for his glory, for the praise of his excellency for now and forever in Avondale Estates, in Decatur, in Atlanta, and to the very ends of the earth. We have been entrusted with a mission. I don't know about you, but I want to say yes, sir. I'm going to invite our prayer team. We're going to sing in just a moment. Maybe the Lord's just nudging you in some way. Maybe you need a trust in this message that is worth giving your life away for. You feel a little scared. Can I tell you something? God will meet you in that. God will meet you in that. Maybe God's calling you to do some hard thing in your life, to have a hard conversation, to share the gospel with a, a difficult way. Maybe God is stirring you out of apathy. I don't know, but I want to say our t- prayer team is available right now. And if you would like to respond, I want to encourage you to do so. Let me pray. We're going to sing. And when we stand up, you go ahead and go back and receive some ministry from the people of God. Let's stand together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's encouragement to Timothy and how timeless it is. Thank you for the example of these five missionary couples who are willing to do what it takes to see the mission go forward. I pray that God would stir in us a desire to be about your mission. Lord, if somebody here has never trusted in the good work of Jesus that has the power to transform savages into sons. Lord, I pray that they would embrace that message even now. I pray all of us would give our commander in chief, yes, sir. Lord, we don't know what it is, whatever you call, we are ready to obey and we know you will meet us in our obedience. Lord, do what you wanna do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's worship you, respond to the Lord as you see fit.